for Western Christians, the idea that you could lose your life for what you believe is mostly a concept found in history books, a relic from the Dark Ages. But martyrdom is still happening, and far more often than some people suspect. I'm Jean Boonstra, and today on The Voice of Prophecy, we're going to be looking at Death by Religion. The word martyr is often used facetiously by modern English speakers to ridicule people who try to elicit sympathy or feel sorry for themselves. If they're constantly seeking attention, we say they're playing the martyr, or we say they have a martyr complex. But we don't honestly believe they're being persecuted or that they're about to lose their lives for a noble cause. And maybe that's because it's not very often that we actually see a real martyr in the Western world. Now, from time to time, we do see occasional people who are murdered for what they believe. People like Martin Luther King Jr. absolutely fit the bill. But it's not very often that we come across someone who is systematically persecuted and put to death simply for being a Christian. But in other parts of the world, it still happens with some regularity. A little while ago, I was reading my morning news feed when I came across the story of a Christian woman in Sudan who was sentenced to death by hanging for the crime of apostasy, which at first glance sounds like a story right out of the Dark Ages, except that hanging is somewhat more humane than some of the punishments dished out by the barbarous minds of the Inquisition. I found the story posted on the NBC News website, but it was carried by most major news outlets, and I'm sure that you heard about it too. But just in case you didn't, let me bring you up to speed. A Christian woman in Sudan, a lady by the name of Mariam Ibrahim, if I'm saying that correctly, she was given the death sentence, death by hanging, because she was convicted of the crime of apostasy. And of course, here in America, or in Canada, or in Europe, apostasy is not a crime because you're free to believe whatever you want. But in some Muslim-majority countries, apostasy is actually a capital crime. Now, I suspect that this story garnered a lot of international attention because 27-year-old Miriam has a young toddler, and she was eight months pregnant when they sentenced her. And according to some sources, even the death penalty didn't seem to be enough because they also gave her a hundred lashes for committing adultery. And not because she had an adulterous affair, but because she married a Christian man, a marriage considered to be void under Sudanese law. And that's kind of an interesting tidbit all on its own, because apparently Muslim men are allowed to marry outside of their faith, but not women. And even then, Miriam didn't actually marry outside her faith, because, you see, she is a Christian. But that doesn't matter to the court, because the children of Muslim men are considered to be Muslim, apparently even if they're not around to raise them. Now, from where I sit, right here in North America, that's a completely foreign story and a completely foreign concept, that the government could actually interfere in your choice of a mate and your choice of religious belief. Now, even when I used to read those stories about Christians hiding in the wilderness during the Middle Ages to avoid the torture chambers of the Inquisition, I had trouble wrapping my head around the concept that people could behave like that, 
that people would care that much about another person's ideas. But when the story happens in the 21st century, it's even more shocking. And I guess that's the reason it made headlines here in the West. Now, how did this lady commit the terrible crime of apostasy? Well, it's because her father was a Muslim, and so even though her father was absent for most of her childhood, and her mother raised her as an Orthodox Christian, I guess the court still considered her to be Muslim. And once you're a Muslim in a nation like Sudan, then you're a Muslim for life. So they gave her the death penalty, and then they gave her three days to recant her Christian faith. And I guess in the past, most people, given that choice, opted to walk away from Christianity. But not Miriam. Denying Jesus wasn't an option. After her three days were up, she calmly and quietly told the judge, I am a Christian, and I never committed apostasy. And so the court condemned her to death. And from what I understand, they won't kill her until two years after the baby is born. But her brutal conviction reminds me of a couple of really important things. First of all, I know that Western Christians feel somewhat ridiculed and sidelined in the brave new world of 21st century America. And to some extent, that might be true. But let's not lose sight of the fact that for the moment, we are still perfectly free to be Christians or not be Christians and to live according to the dictates of our conscience. This is still a relatively free country. It might be getting less free by the day, but for the time being, nobody stops me from going to church, no one stops me from preaching the gospel, and no one stops me or you from reading our Bibles. They might ridicule us, they might assassinate my character if I run for office, they might openly despise me in an editorial, but they still can't stop me, at least not yet. And lesson number two? There are millions of Christians in this world who really need our prayers. They don't have the freedoms that we enjoy. In some places, they have to register their churches with the government and subject themselves to unrelenting scrutiny, or live in fear of having their family members imprisoned and their homes bulldozed. And in still other places, they face losing their lives simply because they're Christian. And I don't know about you, but their example really puts my own Christian faith to the test. Would you really be willing to die for your faith? That's a question I ask myself often. I mean, sometimes we refuse to go to church because someone hurt our feelings or because maybe there's a football game on that we don't want to miss. And sometimes we have these expensive study Bibles that cost more than $100 that accumulate dust on the bookshelf because we just don't have time to read them. And then I see a video of Chinese Christians getting their very first Bible, cheap, mass-produced, newsprint Bibles, and they kiss them, and they cry, and they rip off the plastic so they can start reading it before someone takes it away. And it kind of makes me wonder, if someone snuck into the average North American Christian's home and stole their Bible, How long would it be until most of us noticed that it was gone? Now we're going to take a quick break, and then I'll come back and we'll talk a little about martyrdom. Why are people willing to cling to their faith in the face of death? Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if your life has lost its meaning, just moving from one task to another without any answers to the really important questions in life? Like, is it possible to have a fresh start and to find real happiness? 
Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for to this and to all of life's big questions. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. You can choose to study in the format that's most convenient for you. You may either do the lessons completely online or have them mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. I'm Jean Boonstra, and we are back. Now, just before the break, I was talking about Christians who still give their lives for the faith in other parts of the world, about the fact that martyrdom still happens. And honestly, as long as there have been principled, Bible-believing Christians, there have been people who died for the gospel. In the words of Revelation 12, they did not love their lives to the death. So, it's been happening for a long, long time, and, and there has never really been a time when biblical Christianity has been overwhelmingly popular. Even here in North America, where religious liberty is practically taken for granted, principled Bible-believing Christianity has really only had a few short years of popularity. And it seems like we've really turned a corner so that Christians are once again the object of ridicule, like most of Christians throughout history. So there's no shortage of martyrdom stories. And one of the favorites, if you can actually have a favorite story about dying Christians, well, it comes from the life of Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna back in the second century. Now, just on the off chance that you've never heard of Smyrna, it's one of the seven cities mentioned in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. It was located in Asia Minor on the western edge of what's modern-day Turkey, and today they call it Izmir, and it's the third biggest city in the country. But back in the second century, it was part of the Roman Empire, and the bishop of the Church of Smyrna was a guy named Polycarp, who actually studied under the Apostle John as in John, who wrote the book of Revelation, that John. Well, to get right to the heart of the matter, Polycarp refused to acknowledge the Roman emperor as a god. More specifically, he refused to offer incense to the emperor. Now, in reality, very few people truly believed that the Roman emperor was a god, especially the people who grew up with him and worked with him before he became the emperor. But the Romans needed a way to unify the empire some kind of glue to hold all these people from different backgrounds and different religions together. They didn't insist that people worship the Roman gods, and they actually practiced religious liberty. Well, to a point, anyway. You could worship anything or anybody you wanted in the Roman Empire, as long as you added Caesar to the mix. The only people who had an exemption were the Jews, because they had helped Julius Caesar win a battle. So all they had to do, at least in the beginning, was promise to pray for the emperor. But once the Romans made a distinction between the Jews and the Christians, the Christians had no such exemption. They were not a national religion, and they were spreading quickly throughout the empire. And they might have been left alone, the Christians, if they'd only agreed to offer a pinch of incense to the emperor once a year. And I'm guessing human nature being what it is, that some of the more timid Christians actually did just that. They offered the incense, and then they went back to being Christians the next day. Well, not Polycarp. He took his dedication to Jesus very seriously, and he refused to acknowledge any other god. So, they condemned him to death. And this is where the story gets really interesting. 
Apparently, when Polycarp appeared in front of the Roman proconsul, he tried to convince Polycarp to save himself. He said, look, what's the point of this? You're an old man and, and there's point in dying now. Just walk away from Jesus. Actually, according to historical records, what he said specifically was, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, down with the atheists. And by atheists, the proconsul was referring to the Christians, because the Christians didn't worship statues, and oddly enough, the Romans considered them to be atheists. Repent and say, down with the atheists. Swear, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Polycarp's reply has become legendary. He said, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So they tried to reason with him a little bit more. They tried to scare him with the thought of dying in the flames, but he wouldn't budge. So they tied him up, and they burned him to death. Well, you'd think that would really put the brakes on the expansion of Christianity in Asia Minor, but it actually had the opposite effect. There's something about someone who's killed for his or her faith that wakes up something profound in the human heart, because it's at that point that we realize this isn't just a philosophy, this isn't just a way of life, this isn't just a religious opinion. The Christ that these people are willing to die for means everything to them. He captivates the human heart so completely that people would sooner die than walk away or lose him. His gift at the cross is so valuable that his followers are also willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the kingdom. And they don't die like kamikaze pilots or radical terrorists, at least not the ones who really die for the love of Christ. They don't lose their lives in the process of attacking or of persecuting others. They die because the world rejects them. Just listen to this passage from the book of Hebrews. It's found at the end of chapter 11, which is a long list of Old Testament heroes who were willing to lose everything for the sake of the gospel. I'm starting now partway through verse 35, and it says, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Now, when you first read that, you might be tempted to think these people were out of their mind. They were tortured, they were whipped, they were thrown in prison, and they were sawn in two. They were treated like scum. And why? Well, for a belief system. Except that it's more than a belief system. They didn't put up with that kind of stuff for a principle. They didn't put up with that kind of abuse because they didn't want to lose a debate. Believe me, it's far easier to just blend in and go with the flow. It's easier to be like everyone else. Except that for Christians, this is all about a person. Person with a capital P. Not a dead historical person, but the Son of God, who became one of us, lived with us, died a worse death than we can imagine, and then rose from the dead. And why? So that you wouldn't be lost to God. He gave everything he had to be sure that you would be okay. 
and the people who trust him find him to be more than trustworthy. The people who let him into their lives find that knowing God the Son on a personal level is worth any price. You gladly walk away from everything if it means you have eternity with him. And you might notice that Christian martyrs are actually following in the footsteps of the Messiah himself. Jesus didn't die in the middle of a violent attack on someone else. He didn't even protest when they arrested him on false pretenses and then convicted him in an illegal trial in the middle of the night. He was completely innocent, and yet he stood there quietly as they lied about him. The prophet Isaiah saw it coming. We read in Isaiah 53, verses 6 and 7, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. You know, there's a huge difference between someone who becomes a martyr on the battlefield and the way that Jesus lost his life. And there's a huge difference between someone who becomes a martyr in a ruthless act of terror and someone who's a real Christian martyr, someone who willingly lays down his or her life for Christ. In fact, I don't know how you can honestly call someone a martyr when they die during an act of aggression. The word martyr comes from the Greek martis, which literally means witness. I guess if you die while you're killing people for your faith, you are being a witness to something. You are bringing attention to your belief system, but I wouldn't call that good advertising. Now, when a young woman in Sudan quietly says, I'm a Christian, knowing that they're going to kill her for it, now that's what a martyr is. That's what a witness is. Because there's something in every one of us that resonates with what she's doing. Even people who aren't particularly religious rally to her defense. They recognize the injustice of it. They know she's innocent. And every one of us can feel her faith is worth something. It's the kind of story that makes you go back and re-examine your own faith, your own commitment to Christ, your own relationship with God. Now let's think for a minute about the Boston Marathon bombings. Someone might be tempted to say that the Zarnev brother, who got shot while hiding in the sailboat, is a martyr because he died for his belief system. He died when he thought he was defending his faith. But what witness did he give to his belief system when he set off that pressure cooker bomb at the Boston Marathon? I mean, really, apart from a handful of radicals who are attracted to that kind of thing, who did that win? And just so we're not picking on one religious faith, what kind of witness did Timothy McVeigh give to his beliefs when he bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City? Now, I'm not sure that he was religiously motivated, but he was politically motivated. He was doing it to get revenge against the federal government for what happened at Waco and at Ruby Ridge. So, a few years later, he died by lethal injection. But would you call him a martyr? Did he really get the kind of recognition that he wanted for his cause? Well, I guess sympathizers would call these guys martyrs because they died for their beliefs. But if the word martyr means witness, if that's the original sense of the word, then they did a really bad job of it. Just compare that kind of behavior to the calm, collected people who give their lives for the cause of Christ. 
the people who are just minding their own business, living their own lives, but for some reason, others want them dead. They want them gone. When a young woman in Sudan quietly says, I'm a Christian, knowing that they're going to kill her for it, that's what a martyr is. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I come back, we're going to pay one more quick visit to the ancient city of Smyrna. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Like, where is God when people suffer? Or can I find real happiness? And is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. You can choose to study in the format that's most convenient for you. You may either do the lessons completely online or have them mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. In the final segment of our show today, let's go back to the city of Smyrna and read some of the letter addressed to that city in the book of Revelation. Now, most Bible students agree that while the letter to Smyrna was addressed to a real church in the first century, it was also a prophetic message pointing forward to a time when Christians would suffer unbelievable persecution at the hands of the Roman government. In fact, the seven letters to the seven churches all seem to point forward to different periods of Christian history, from the days of John right up until the Second Coming. And it's really kind of breathtaking once you see it. But the letter to the Church of Smyrna is particularly addressed to Christians who suffer for their faith, and it's found in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, now let's pause for a minute, that's probably the first elder or the pastor or the bishop whose job it was to read this letter to the whole church. So let's pick it up again. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. This message from Jesus to persecuted Christians is to people who suffer because of their faith. And he starts by reminding us that he gets it. Jesus knows what it's like to live here. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be lonely, to be rejected, to be misunderstood. And he really knows what it's like to be murdered simply because of who you are. And his message to persecuted Christians is, Don't worry, I've been there. I was dead, but the grave couldn't hold me. I was dead, but I'm alive. And because of that, you can face whatever comes with confidence. Because even if they kill you, you're going to be just fine. Now, it's no wonder that genuine Christians can't be scared away from their faith. I mean, how can they lose? Even if they kill you, you win. You will get to live again, and you get to live in the presence of God Himself. Now, in the interest of time, let me jump to verse 10. This is Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. 
Now, these 10 days probably refer to 10 years of unbelievable persecution at the hands of the Roman Emperor Diocletian, who tried his level best to stomp out the Christian faith. In Bible prophecy, a day is often used to represent a year, and for 10 years, in the beginning of the 4th century, the Diocletian persecutions really turned up the heat. Remember, we read in Revelation chapter 2, picking up again in verse 10, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. I guess here's the bottom line. They can kill you, but they can only kill you once. Now, it's not pleasant. It's not something you want. But if it happens, they can only do it once. And then the God who gave his life for you takes over. He came out of the grave, and so will you. And that's why it's worth it to be faithful unto death. You know where you're headed, and there's nothing in this life worth clinging to if it means missing the kingdom of God. And even if it doesn't mean death for you, even if you live here in the West, where relatively few people die for their faith, at the moment anyway, being faithful is still a choice. It is still a challenge. It still means that people will misunderstand. It still means the devil will try his best to make you let go of your faith. But don't for a moment lose your grip, because there's nothing anyone can do that will rob you of what Jesus has in store. Let liars lie, let agitators agitate, let slanderers slander, and let haters hate. Because in the end, that is all that they have. Now I know it's hard not to fight back or to defend yourself. Believe me, I know. I have to fight that urge too. And it doesn't mean that you have to be a doormat, that you have to let people walk on you or abuse you. But what it does mean is that you can choose to be a martyr. Now, not in the literal life-giving sense, not necessarily, but in the sense that your response should be a witness. Never forget in Acts chapter 7 that as the angry crowd picked up stones to put Stephen to death, there was a young man whose heart was touched so deeply by Stephen's witness, that Jesus confronted him later on the road to Damascus. His name was Saul of Tarsus, and he quite literally brought the gospel to the Roman Empire before he himself became a martyr. Let your witness be so obvious that even if you don't live to see it, someone else will have his or her conscience so deeply stirred that they too will light up this world with the glory of Christ. I'm Jean Boonstra. Thanks for listening to The Voice of Prophecy. Well, the year 2012 came and went, and we're still here. Those who predicted the end of the world were clearly wrong. But I remember the fears and the speculations, asteroids, mysterious plagues, and just whatever else. No one exactly knew. But they were sure that the world would end in 2012. Well, they were surely wrong. But maybe you remember the hype too, and perhaps it even left you with a lot of questions about the future and whether or not the Bible is real. Well, if you're searching for answers to this and other of life's tough questions, I know where you can begin to find answers. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number, 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides.
The 26 Discover Guides cover a whole range of subjects, including the ones we've been talking about today. Guide number two looks at a fundamental question, can we believe the Bible? While answering that answers a whole world of other questions. And what about the future? Is it all doom and gloom? Well, in guide number seven, we discover an amazing Bible prophecy that came to pass just as predicted. You can study online at our website, BibleStudies.com, or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. And while you're online, be sure to visit us at VOP.com. At VOP.com, you'll find audio archives of this program, the latest ministry news, and resources to help you dig deeply into God's Word. And did you know that you can listen to this program from your smartphone or tablet? Well, just search for Voice of Prophecy in your favorite app store. So give us a call at 888-456-7933 or visit us online to begin your journey to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Visit BibleStudies.com today.